we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian. I'm executive director of the center. And our guest this week is Christopher Landau, who was ambassador to Mexico for about a year and a half, two years under the Trump administration. Obviously, you know, had a lot of doings with immigration. Our relationship with Mexico isn't just about immigration. Sometimes you might think that from reading the news is a lot more to it, but obviously immigration is a big part of it. And so he saw a lot of that, obviously, as ambassador. So thanks, Chris, for joining us. If you could start, basically just give us a little background on yourself. What did you do? How did you end up as ambassador? How'd you end up in Mexico City? Sure thing, Mark. Well, first of all, let me thank you for inviting me here. I'm delighted to be with you and your listeners. I uh, grew up in the Foreign Service. My father was a career Foreign Service officer, and I was born in Spain and grew up in South America. I came back to the States for high school and, and college. I went to boarding school. But I always had a real affinity for that part of the world. I learned Spanish as a kid. And the same token, I went to law school and I practiced law for 30 years. I never lost my interest in the, in the issue south of the border. And one issue I've always been passionate about is exactly the one we're talking about, immigration. And I was horrified over the last number of years to see how our country lost control over our border with Mexico. And I wanted to see if I could help be part of a solution to that. So the stars kind of aligned for me. I'd been active in politics for a number of years and had some good contacts and made my interests known in the post. Again, driven largely because Mexico matters for us. There's probably no other country in the world where our relationship has such a direct impact on the daily security and prosperity of Americans. And you are right to talk about immigration as a key issue in the relationship, but commerce is also a big issue. Mexico is our largest trading partner, or certainly one of the top two or three. It obviously goes up and down every few months, but it's up there. And also security issues, drugs are very important. So, uh, you know, I think being ambassador to Mexico is probably the closest thing you can do in the foreign policy space to have a direct impact on the nation's domestic policy. Yeah, I've always been um, amazed at Mexico's importance to our actual U.S. policy, but the almost complete absence of it in media, or I won't say absence, but the disparity between the attention it gets in the media and in public debates compared to how important it really is. I mean, literally, Mexico... I mean, along with Canada, the two most important countries in the world to us, and yet we hear way more about what's going on in Myanmar or whatever than we do about Mexico. You're absolutely right. And I think it's been a problem that for several generations now, American foreign policy elites have focused largely on the Middle East. You think about all the blood and treasure we expended in Iraq and Afghanistan and 
you know, Europe and Asia. And obviously those are important parts of the world. But, you know, historically, if you go back to the days of the Monroe Doctrine, the 19th century, you know, with this hemisphere was kind of paramount in our foreign policy concerns. And I think it deserves more attention and particularly Mexico. If Mexico goes down the drain, we are going to feel that very directly in the United States. And so I think that is a, a critical relationship. And, you know, we're focusing on some of the negative, you know, the migration issues, security issues. But again, I think there's a lot of positive uh, upside to a good relationship with Mexico. I mentioned the commercial ties, but, you know, the, the, our countries, we're now in a free trade zone. And, you know, I think there's a lot of economic opportunities. Mexico's a huge market, 130 million people and people where American brands are still strong. I mean, they have Radio Shack and, and Sears down there. I mean, Things brands that don't even exist Don't exist anymore. in the States, but that brand is so strong that, you know, it's continued in Mexico. And so, you know, I wish Americans would pay more attention to what's going on south of the border. Often, in fact, very frequently, being hawkish on immigration is presented as somehow being anti-Mexican. You know, not just sort of, racist or hateful even in general, but anti-Mexican specifically. And your experience in Mexico, I mean, I'd like you to talk a little bit about it, was really very much the opposite. You were yourself, obviously, appreciative and respectful of Mexican culture, but that was reciprocated, as I understand it. I mean, they were, they're big fans of you down there, even though, obviously, you were Trump administration's ambassador and were not, you know, soft on immigration. So what was your experience there? Well, let me just take it a step further and back up even further. I think being concerned about immigration is often portrayed as being xenophobic. And, you know, I think nothing could be further from the truth. You know, my own family, like many Americans, we're a family of immigrants. I'm a first-generation American. My parents were both born in Europe. My father came right before World War II, my mother uh, afterwards, and, and my father became a citizen while in the Army. He volunteered for the Army in World War II. So I think it is a recognition that we are a nation of laws, and one of the aspects of a democracy is that we, the people, can decide what our immigration laws should be, our elected representatives, and they have done that, and they have created a mechanism. We can certainly argue over whether the laws are good or bad, whether they should be changed, but what really alarms me is a willingness on behalf of a lot of people in this country, including some in our own government, who are not interested in enforcing the laws. And to me, a country based on the rule of law breaks down if you have the executive branch, whose constitutional duty is to enforce the law, declaring that they will categorically not enforce certain laws. So, you know, I'm very concerned about where it stands. Going back to your specific point about immigration and Mexico, you are 100% correct that I think a lot in the media, particularly, we're trying to portray concern over our loss of control at our 2,000-mile southern border as being anti-Mexican. You know, for me, as I mentioned, I grew up in Latin America. I'm bilingual in Spanish. I, I studied Latin American history in college and culture. And I'm fascinated by those things, uh, by, by their history. You know, Mexico has a very rich history, and 
maybe a little too rich, but well, you know, it's, <laughs> you know, like any, you know, it's it's a fascinating sure. clash of civilizations, and and you know, actually, this year is 500 years of the conquest of Mexico City by the Spanish by Cortes. Oh, Cortez. that's this year. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, okay. I was there a couple of years ago when it was the 500th anniversary of one of the great moments of human history when Cortes, with his small band of Spaniards, comes up to the great city of Tenochtitlan, which was the Aztec capital on a lake, really one of the great cities of the world and totally foreign to these Europeans. They had no idea what they would find. So Mexican history, in a sense, has been grown out of that clash between those two civilizations and the creation of a new one. And anyway, I think for me, it was very authentic, my interest in Mexican culture and history. And, and I think it was very important in my role as ambassador to explain where we were coming from in the Trump administration and that it was not anything anti any particular country. To the contrary, it was pro our own sovereignty. And if there's anything that Mexicans understand and are understandably prickly about, it's sovereignty. They're very prickly about their own sovereignty. And when I said, look, you know, we have sovereignty too. And, right. you know, part of sovereignty is being able to decide who comes in your country and under what circumstances. And that's what we are trying to get control over. So, you know, again, I, I am uh, frustrated with the way this debate is cast. And I think the answer is that we need to take a very hard look at the entire field of immigration and make it easier to have people come here if there are jobs that would otherwise go unfilled. I mean, you walk around now, you see, you know, help wanted signs everywhere. I was just talking to a friend of mine who owns a restaurant and they're desperate. Again, I think we as a country need to figure out, you know, are there jobs that Americans won't do? And if so, how do we create a system so that other people can come here and work legally? To me, it's a misnomer to talk about immigration generally as if it is one issue, because to me, there's a very sharp distinction between legal immigration and illegal immigration. And, and I, for the life of me, cannot understand why anybody would be happy with the status quo that is basically rewarding and encouraging illegal immigration. I've noticed uh, there are a lot of people who are immigration hawks who also, I think, have a, a sort of misperception of Mexican public attitudes. In other words, that the rantings of some radicals somehow represents ordinary Mexican opinion, that Mexico somehow is hostile to the United States. And while obviously there's historical chips on their shoulder and all that sort of thing, my sense is your experience was that there's actually significant goodwill toward the United States. I mean, it's not just that they want to shop at Sears and Radio Shack, is that, you know, they, they actually, like I said, there is a positive feelings about America, but it also, we need to approach them respectfully and reciprocate. I really agree with that. And I think you've put your finger on something very important that, you know, Mexican public opinion has shifted uh, on some of these issues along with the shift in what immigration patterns are. In recent years, we have seen a very new phenomenon, which is massive third country migration through Mexico in violation of Mexico's immigration laws to get to the United States to try to cross our land border. And, you know, I think Mexicans now are seeing the downside of that. And I think they don't want their country to be a doormat 
for people trying to enter the United States illegally. That is not in Mexico's interest, and it's not in our interest. So I actually think there's a lot of potential common ground there. And as living conditions in Mexico have risen, the standard of living in Mexico has risen in, in recent decades, at least prior to COVID, the pressures for migration have lessened. Now, there's obviously still a, a pretty vast wage difference between our two countries. So there's always going to be some pressure. But I think we're at a moment when Mexican attitudes towards migration are in flux. And I think, you know, the Mexicans are like Americans. I mean, they basically want to put food on the table for their families. They're hardworking people. And I think they don't like it when they see people trying to game the system. And I think they are rightly very concerned about the strength of the criminal networks in their country. I mean, Mark, this is one of the things that has driven me crazy that the American media kind of portrays the migration story as, oh, these poor migrants, let's just let them in. It's very mean not to let them in because they're so, they're poor people. Let me say this. These people are not getting from, let's say, Honduras to Brownsville, Texas, without being part of networks of human smugglers and traffickers. I mean, the criminal elements control northern Mexico and the border crossings in terms of the flow of people. And these people are paying other people. Sometimes, in fact, they are going into indentured servitude, essentially, when they come into the United States. And I think these are important stories. I mean, I I remember talking to some of the governors in Mexico. I went around the country. I met all the governors. And in Veracruz state, for instance, which is on the Gulf Coast and is kind of a major thoroughway from Central America up towards Texas and the, the Rio Grande Valley, they would find routinely tractor trailers with hundreds of people trapped inside, just abandoned by human smugglers. So we are kidding ourselves if we don't think that a loosey-goosey message on immigration from the United States isn't putting money right in the pockets of smugglers. Right. I actually kind of call that open-ish borders because sometimes you'll have libertarians say, well, if we just let everybody in, then they wouldn't have to, they wouldn't need to be smuggled. They could just walk across the border and then we'd have unlimited immigration and open borders, which is sophomoric and isn't going to happen. Or you enforce the border and make it difficult. And some people will still try to sneak across, but it becomes difficult. What we have now is open-ish borders, where we kind of pretend to enforce the border, and people still have to work with these criminal organizations to get here, but we're not all that serious about it. And so there's this huge flow of people who try to take advantage no, of it's, the opportunity. It's, I think that's a fair observation that we kind of have the worst of both worlds now. And just, again, if you look at the current administration's message, it's muddled to say the least. I mean, they kind of say publicly, the border is closed. At the same time, we can see on video, on social media, you know, images of hundreds of people crossing the border with nobody really stopping them. And, and then turning themselves in. And turning themselves right. in. Yeah. Again, there's a lot of issues that need fixing. And again, I think it's perfectly legitimate in democracy for us to have a public debate about what the laws should be. But I think what we shouldn't be having a debate about is what the law is. And certainly the government, the executive branch, has a responsibility to enforce the law. They're not entitled to pick and choose the laws that they happen to like. And that, you know, that's not the way it works in our system. And so you know, I guess maybe this is the constitutional lawyer in me 
that is very and offended. You, and you did clerk on the Supreme Court, too. Just I did. To say that, yeah, right? no, I, I, I clerked for Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas. And, you know, again, I, I have a real respect for the law. And I think, frankly, one of the things that draws people to our country is that, by and large, we have a society that does respect the law. I think that is something that we kind of take for granted here. But when you travel around in the rest of the world, those are kind of cultural attitudes that really, I think, have a lot to do with whether nations succeed or fail. And it's been a strength of ours. And so I feel that, you know, this is just a mockery of our system. To get back to your idea of Mexico itself sort of waking up to the fact that having all these third country people traipse through their own countries and such a great thing. I remember, I think the maybe it was the New York Times or maybe it was the Post, did a story on Cubans in Juarez, the city of Ciudad Juarez on the border across from El Paso. And they were asking Mexicans and they were complaining about all these Cubans showing up. And they're actually, some of them just settled there. They said, well, it's just not worth trying. I'm just going to open a restaurant here or whatever it is. And they were, they were actually complaining. Likewise, you've heard some complaints. I've, I've seen them about the Haitian immigrant community in Tijuana because enough of them have gotten there and decided not to bother crossing the border that they've now set up shop. And, you know, there's pluses and minuses just like there is to immigration. But my point is Mexico is now, in a sense, sort of experiencing some of the same issues. And my sense is that's one of the reasons they see a certain degree of a commonality of interest. There's no question, Mark. There's no question. And, and I, you know, I, I certainly tried to highlight that point as ambassador and saying, look, you guys have immigration laws too. I mean, there are some political actors in Mexico, I think mostly kind of the old guard, who would say things like, well, there's a, a human right to migrate. And I would say, well, what on earth does that mean? I mean, that, I guess that sounds nice in, in kind of you know, left-wing circles. To, they, they like to kind of make up rights. But I said, like, don't you guys have passports? I certainly needed a passport to get in here. I mean, if I want to go to France, I mean, I, I can say that, you know, I, I identify as French. I love French culture. That doesn't mean I have a human right to go live in Paris. I mean, the French government will determine whether I get in and, and how long I can stay and all that. I mean, I, I don't think it has been true in human history, at least since the rise of the nation state hundreds of years ago, that people just have a right a human right to go to another country to work whenever they feel like it. And so, again, I think there's a lot of kind of just woolly-headed thinking that has arisen about this issue. And, you know, people love to say things that, you know, sound great, like we like bridges, not walls. And those kind of sentiments sound great. But I think, again, it goes back to sovereignty. And for those of us who believe in the nation state and Borders are a key control. That's why we have walls around our houses. We don't leave the front door open. Not just anybody can come in. It's the same thing on a broader level. And let me just uh, underscore one point, though, I think is really critical. I don't, I don't want to lose it, which is to some extent, we, we need to look to Mexico to cooperate with us, particularly on these third country nationals. And, and let me say this just on that point. It is like United Nations in some of these cities in Mexico. I mean, right. y you mentioned Cubans and Haitians. And in our hemisphere, there's Venezuelans, Brazilians in very large numbers, Ecuadorians, not to mention the big three are Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. Although just to interject, in the past few months, Ecuador actually sends more people than El Salvador does. Okay, well, see, so that, that, I, I wasn't even aware of yeah. that. But going worldwide, I mean, there are people... In Mexico, it's somewhat shocking. 
trying to get into the United States illegally through the border from Bangladesh, from yep. Kazakhstan, from Congo. It's really like the United Nations in some of these places. And I think this has been an eye-opener to Mexico that they need to start stepping up to the plate and enforcing their immigration laws. So to go back to an early question that you asked about you know, the level of cooperation when I was ambassador, it was very good. A new administration had come into Mexico, the López Obrador administration, which is still in office today, in December 2018, so kind of in the middle of the, the Trump administration. And the new president, President López Obrador, announced early on in his administration that Mexico was going to relax its own border enforcement. And so what did that unleash? All these caravans in early 2019. I don't know if you remember, but it kind of, of reached a, a head in May of 2019. I believe we detained 140,000 people at our southern border. And President Trump said, enough is enough. When the Mexican president made that announcement about Mexico's enforcement of its own immigration laws, it goes to show that people are economically rational. They're not going to risk their life and their fortune however meager that may be, but you know, 10,000 bucks or whatever a smuggler's charging is a lot of money for these folks, which is why a lot of them go into indentured servitude. So they're not going to do that if their chances of getting into Mexico, across Mexico, and into the United States are very low. When you move the dial on some of these things, even slightly, it can have a major effect. And we saw that. And so, as you all may recall, there was a, a moment in late May, early June of 2019, where President Trump threatened to impose tariffs on Mexico unless they did something to basically contain this crisis that they had unleashed by making these announcements. And I think they knew that they had complicity in, in this and did not want to have tariffs imposed on their economy. I think they knew President Trump was not a bluffer. And so, you know, we managed to work out an understanding with them that we were enforcing the laws on our side of the border, and they were enforcing their own laws on their side of the border. And I have to say, I, I was not there for that as ambassador. I, I arrived just after that whole episode concluded. But for my tenure, we had very good cooperation with the Mexicans. You know, President Trump was, was very fond of highlighting that fact and, and the fact that you know, this was actually unprecedented, that Mexico was actually taking some affirmative steps to police its own borders. And you know, again, I don't think that is due only to the Trump administration, as well as it seems to me it's also due to the, the factors we were talking about of Mexico's own public opinion saying, wait, why are we encouraging all these people from all over the world to come into our country and, and, and cross our country? Yeah, I remember um, there was a picture of the mayor of Tijuana, who he's no longer mayor now, he lost re-election, and knew he was in political trouble all of these people were coming through. So he actually had made up a red cap that said, make Tijuana great again in English. <laughs> and um, because there were people, there were, there were his voters who were out there protesting, saying, you know, what's going on here? And, you know, we're getting overrun right. by these people trying to head to the border and we got to stop this. Well, what's especially crazy now, Mark, is that the United States, and we, you know, we can talk about some of the shifts in our, in our own policy when this administration came in earlier this year, the United States is basically now encouraging this kind of migration again, indeed, if not always in word, in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of a global pandemic. I mean, let me say, you know, I was ambassador there for the first, you know, year of the pandemic from, you know, from March of 2020 to January 2021. And we 
monitored this issue so closely. I was on a call with the White House virtually every day just to talk about what we're seeing on the ground, on migration, because I think we realize that the last thing you want to do in a pandemic is encourage or tolerate unregulated flows of people across international borders. And you don't get much credit for a crisis you avert, but it was kind of like the dog that didn't bark. I mean, we managed to keep the southern border largely under control for the part of the pandemic that, that was during the Trump administration. And you know, I think that had a positive impact on public health in the United States, needless to say. You referred to, you know, you were, you were calling back to headquarters uh, almost every day. Is the ambassador to Mexico or was the ambassador to Mexico at that point one of the people who was on sort of regular immigration calls? In other words, were you part of like the, I don't know, immigration team or immigration circle of people who were uh, kept in the loop? I'd say yes and no. Traditionally, I would say the answer is no, that the ambassador to Mexico has not been in there. I think people in the administration knew it was an issue that I was very passionate about and that I had valuable perspectives to offer on the ground in Mexico. And so I became part of that process. And it seems to me that's very worthwhile. It's almost like a no-brainer. I mean, of yeah. course, the ambassador to Mexico. No, but be I mean, part you know, of one, one of the things, Mark, that was really a, 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 a very interesting experience for me, and I should say, I practiced law for thirty years before I took this job, so I did not have a lot of experience in government, really none, since my days as a law clerk right out of law school. And the bureaucracy and the difficulty of coordinating the bureaucracy was shocking to me, both in the United States and in Mexico, for that matter. And, you know, I think immigration is considered a domestic issue. So I think people are usually not thinking of, you know, let's get the ambassador to Mexico in I the see. loop when they're right. making immigration decisions. But I think it's very important because, again, I don't think you can solve things at the border without understanding what is going on on the other side of the border. And you know anything that we do, communication is so important because the border is one of those very complicated areas where you change a little something and the next thing you know, you have you know 10-hour delays and people aren't getting their components for commerce. And the border is a very, very intricate and delicate area. So I think it is very important to have someone in Mexico be part of that conversation, not have kind of a rigid dichotomy between the domestic officials and the foreign affairs officials. And, you know, I, I think generally we need to break down silos in the government that typically everybody's kind of in their lane and they're not really thinking about coordinating with people in other lanes. Yeah. So in a sense, the domestic versus international is almost the ultimate silo. I mean, it is. Yeah. That's no, it. it's a very pronounced one. And Mexico and Canada are probably almost sui generis in the whole world, sure, of course, where that line is just really, really blurry. Yeah, there's a scholar whose conclusions I don't buy, but he refers to immigration as an intermestic issue. Kind I, of, a, It's a gimmicky term, but it does get the idea. I across. agree with that. Yeah. I agree with that for good and for ill. And I mean, that's one of the reasons, as I mentioned at the outset, that I was very interested in this job because I, I do think that it, 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 you know, it has massive implications for what goes on in our own country. So for some speculation now, the administration is trying to negotiate with the Mexicans 
about reestablishing the Remain in Mexico program, the migrant protection protocols, where illegal immigrants who were applying for asylum, ostensibly, were made to wait on the Mexican side of the border until their hearing date so that they weren't just let go and then disappeared. Right. Obviously, this is speculation, but I'm skeptical that they're actually interested in pushing Mexico to agree. In other words, my sense is they're kind of winking and nodding and saying, please don't agree. Because obviously Mexico has to agree if we're going to push third country nationals back across their border. Because once they're in our country, they're kind of our problem. What are your thoughts on that? You raised some really interesting points there. Let me just take a, a step back and talk a second about the Remain in Mexico policy. Because that is a very significant thing to understand what's going on. We have our general immigration laws, and then we have a very narrow and very specific category of laws called our asylum laws, that this was something that the United States and, and many countries around the world did, particularly after World War II, when so many people perished. Obviously, the, the example of the Jews was very fresh on everyone's mind who were basically trapped in Europe. And I know that my father was one of them and could not get a visa to the United States and you know, wound up going to Colombia, South America, and then getting a job in the United States and came here legally in 1941. But we have specific laws about asylum, which is that people are allowed to enter the United States legally if they have a well-founded fear of persecution on the basis of certain distinct categories, a uh, basis of race, religion, politics. It's there in the statute. It's maybe, you know, Four or five categories. Five, five categories. Five categories. Yeah. So you you know the law. One of them is a little bit more open ended. Particular social a, a group social group, which I think the... you know. One of the things you learn in law school is when you have a list of five things, you have to read a more general one in light of the other ones. That doesn't mean any social group. It means some specific group that may be subject to persecution on the basis of their membership in that disfavored group in right. another country. Let's not kid ourselves. I mean. People are coming here by and large for economic reasons, and maybe they have violence in their community. There is no Hitler in Central America. People are not fleeing these countries because they're being persecuted for their politics, right? But if they are told, if you say this or that, then that kind of gets you across the initial threshold for getting into the asylum system. And then the system gets so overwhelmed when so many people cross that initial threshold that they can't do adjudications. And so they basically send people out into the country and say, well, we'll see you back in two years for your hearing on this. So exactly. it was just a massive abuse of the system. It made a mockery of the system. Again, the asylum law is what it is. We need to have a, an honest debate in this country about these, these laws, right? So anyway, the system was getting so abused, we needed to come up with a deterrent. Frankly, in my view, the best way to handle this, the simplest and cleanest way would be to say, okay, if you say that you're, you're facing some you know, well-founded fear of persecution uh, on one of these categories in your own country, you can't then cross a country where you are entirely safe. Or five or eight or five or, or, eight or eight countries. countries right? You can't fly halfway across the world and then come into the United States and say, okay, well, now I want to make my asylum claim here. I mean, if you are out of danger, then... The function of asylum is satisfied. It's to get somebody out of a place where they are in legitimate danger of being killed if they don't get out quickly. So unfortunately, I don't know exactly why, this is before I got there, this notion of safe third country in Mexico became totally toxic. The Mexicans would not even listen to whether or not we, under our domestic laws, 
would declare Mexico to be such a safe third country. Interesting. To yeah. me, in a sense, to me, it's a good thing for Mexico to say, yes, sure. we are the kind of place where if somebody makes it here, then you know we're a safe country. There are dangerous parts of Mexico, like there's dangerous parts of the United States as well. And Mexico actually has a whole asylum system. Of course I mean, it does. There are signatories to the Refugee Convention, the UN law, and it's a Comar is the Spanish initials of it. And they even have a video, which I tweet out all the time, explaining in a very helpful way, attractive young woman walking you through the process of applying for asylum. Now it's all in Spanish, but the point is, they have a real asylum system. They do. And so the idea that you should be able to just ignore that, bypass it, because you know your hourly wage would be higher here is just not related to the idea of asylum. Of course not, Mark. But you know, anyway, but be that as it may, this again predates my arrival in Mexico. The best we could come up with was this remain in Mexico policy, which basically said, okay, this gig is up. Like you're no longer gonna get to the United States and basically get a get out of jail free card to get in with the asylum system. If you claim asylum, okay, you know, come in and say claim asylum, well, then you just have to wait in Mexico for that whatever long period it might take for your case to get adjudicated. So as you can imagine, that cut back pretty dramatically on the people who were willing to kind of play this game. I mean, because me, they weren't coming to live in Tijuana for not. two years. Of course yeah. not, right? They, you know, th This was basically a scheme they came up with and it thwarted that scheme. So to me, it was not the best solution because what I don't like about it is that then it kind of, people are in the American asylum system already, right. and then that gives basically the American authorities the kind of open door to look into the conditions for these people in Mexico. And, you know, I mean, it, it gets but to But that be, all requires statutory changes to, to make the kind of changes I think you're suggesting. The Remain in Mexico policy was challenged in the Trump administration and the district court ruled against the administration. So did the Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, which kind of specialized no in that. There, yeah. And then the administration took the case to the US Supreme Court and they put that decision on hold. So they kept the Remain in Mexico policy in place. So it's kind of ironic then when, you know, going to your question, President Biden basically just got rid of it with a stroke of a pen when he entered office. And so it really, it's not been effective since then. Well, that was challenged on administrative law grounds, where the main precedent was actually the DACA decision from back right. in the Trump administration. Again, as a lawyer, I don't love the fact that the courts are getting into all of these executive policies, but it's if it's sauce for the goose, it's sauce for the gander. I mean, sure. if if you know, if we're gonna have policymaking by judicial approval only, people have to learn that's a two-way street. Anyway, long story short, so the court actually required the Biden administration to reinstate it. They said they couldn't without Mexico. It's a little bit tricky because it is a domestic, it's an interpretation of our own laws. The implementation of it certainly requires coordination with right. Mexico. And I certainly hope that Mexico doesn't get used by this administration as the bad guy to say, hey, we're doing what we were told to do, but Mexico over here, they are not uh, applying. I mean, yeah. I, 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 I think see that. Mexico yeah. has to be very careful not to get used as a punching bag in American domestic politics. And I feel very strongly about this, that Mexico has an interest in getting along with its neighbor, regardless of who's in power. I mean, the Democrats are going to be in, sometimes the Republicans are going to be in, and it's not right for whatever government's in power to try to basically enlist a foreign country to be the bad guy to justify their policy. So 
I don't know what's going on behind the scenes. I mean, the scenario you suggested doesn't strike me as outlandish. We will see. I mean, I would hope that if people are required by a court order to do something, that they're doing it in good faith. And again, I would hope that the Mexicans would go along because, frankly, this policy served their interest because what it did, it didn't wind up saddling Mexico with a large number of asylum seekers. It wound up basically drying up these bogus asylum claims at the outset. So you no longer had these people coming because they knew that that loophole was closed. Exactly. We're running low on time. I just had one last question. It's not that big a deal, but Ken Salazar is the ambassador now to Mexico. Have you, did you, do you guys talk? How does that work? Do ambassadors say, you know, the next one, call the previous one and say any tips? I mean, how does, how does that work? I think it's up to the individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did. I contacted my seven predecessors from both political oh, wow. parties because okay. I think it's very important to hear what they have to say, even if it's, you know, the name of a good contact who was a useful source of information. And, uh, you know, I learned a lot from them having, they having been in my shoes. I thought that was very, very important, very valuable. I did not hear from Ambassador Salazar. Okay. I appreciate your coming in. I want to respect people's time. I don't want to make this an hour-long podcast. We've gone long enough. I really appreciate your coming in. Hopefully, your plans in the future will keep you connected in some way to either Mexico or to immigration or both. We'll see how that goes. Thanks for coming in. Thank you, Mark, for the invitation, and thanks to everybody who uh, gave some of your time to listen to this. Much appreciated. These are really important issues for our country. So, Mark, thanks for what you do, and thanks to to the listeners for their interest in this issue. And finally, I wanted to talk about some of the, I think, confusing developments that have happened with regard to this Remain in Mexico program that the ambassador and I talked about a little bit during our interview. As we mentioned, a judge had nixed the administration's original effort to end the Remain in Mexico program, the thing that requires third country people seeking asylum to stay in Mexico until their hearing dates. And that was what a lot of people heard. That was widely reported in the news. But then last week, last Friday, in fact, the administration issued a new memo ending the Remain in Mexico program, the Migrant Protection Protocols, because part of the earlier judge's ruling was that the administration had originally not jumped through all the appropriate hoops. In other words, it was a claim based on the Administrative Procedure Act, which requires changes in rules, formal changes, to go through a certain process, and the judge said they hadn't done that. So what happened Friday, this is two days before Halloween, was that the administration issued a new, longer memo giving various reasons. And then what happened this week, maybe not as widely reported but still relevant, was that the administration appeal to the circuit court to enable them to end the Remain in Mexico program had oral arguments, and the judges were not particularly happy about the administration's second memo that they put out. It's sort of a convoluted story here, but the bottom line is that the administration, despite this new memo trying to end Remain in Mexico, that memo won't go into effect. 
until the litigation is finished, assuming they win and succeed in the litigation. So the bottom line is, in another week or two, the administration is going to end up having to re-implement Remain in Mexico, assuming the Mexican government cooperates. I think they're likely to try to limit it as much as possible, only apply it to certain people. But this issue has not been resolved yet. They are going to have to have some version of this in place. And the administration's second memo, the new one that they issued Friday, in an attempt to dot all the I's and cross the T's in ending the Remain in Mexico program, isn't going to resolve anything. All this is going to do is lead to more and continuing litigation. But the thing to look for is whether by the middle of this month, they actually do start re-instituting, re-implementing some version of the Remain in Mexico program, which they're going to have to do or they're going to be likely held in contempt of court. I don't know if that clears it up. It's still pretty confusing. But the point is, this is an ongoing process. Nothing has been resolved yet. And until there's some kind of formal resolution in court, the administration is going to have to reinstitute Remain in Mexico unless the Mexican government simply refuses to cooperate with it. In which case, Texas and Missouri, which are the two states that initiated this lawsuit, are likely to go to the judge and say that if Remain in Mexico can't be re-implemented because the Mexican government refuses to cooperate and the administration refuses to pressure them, as is likely, that they're going to have to detain all of these people and they're going to have to come up with some kind of emergency detention facilities because it is illegal for them to simply be releasing people into the United States. That's it for this week's episode of Parsing Immigration Policy. This is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center for Immigration Studies. Thanks for listening in, and I hope you'll join us next week.